From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A conservative Republican wins an award for courage from a foundation named after a liberal Democrat, demanding action on global warming, putting himself at odds with his party. It's lonely at times, of course, when you look around and after saying something, you realize, hey, there's not many people saying amen. You sort of hear crickets after you've said something. But while it can be lonely, it's also very exciting. Why former Congressman Bob Inglis is taking this stand. Also, bright lights is a solution to bycatch problems for shrimpers. We move the lights from one net to the other, and every time we move the lights to that side, the vast majority of bycatch didn't show up in the net. If you have a lot of bycatch in your net, sometimes you have to dump the whole tow, and you might have to dump three or four or 5,000 pounds of shrimp, and at 50 cents a pound, that covers the lights. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet, and it is mostly a vast ocean, with little more than half the summer ice it used to have just a few decades ago. We'll have more on the economic and national security implications of the warming Arctic Ocean, but first, consider the frozen lands around it. Permafrost, ground that has been solidly frozen since the last ice age thousands of years ago, is beginning to turn to mush. As permafrost warms, it releases greenhouse gases in the form of CO2 and methane, and a recent paper in the journal Nature suggests the climate may be headed for a tipping point. The warmer the permafrost gets, the more carbon is released into the atmosphere, which then promotes more warming, releasing more carbon, and so on. This feedback effect could possibly trigger runaway global warming as early as 2050. And one sign of the changing tundra is already here, with the appearance of weird craters in Siberia. Vladimir Romanovsky is a geophysicist at the University of Fairbanks in Alaska, and we called him up. Welcome to Living on Earth. Yeah, thank you. So what do these craters look like? Well, that's a pretty, you know, large hole in the Earth. It's about 30 meters, like uh, almost 100 feet in diameter. And it's kind of round-shaped hole, and it goes down to up to maybe 40 meters, so it's more than 100 feet in depth. And it's surrounded by some material which it looks like it was uh, thrown out of this hole. So, and that part is the most unusual. So it sounds like some kind of explosion, perhaps. Well, the groups were visiting that. They couldn't find any evidence of fire there, so any evidence of, of real explosion. Otherwise, you would see some charcoal and some other evidence of burning or fire. So it looks like more like very high pressure, which pushed material out of it and threw it away as far as up to 100 yards from the hole. So what could do that? That's a lot of material going a long ways. I mean, if it were a bottle of champagne, it would have an awful amount of bubbles to push out a cork like that. Right, right. So you have to have really, really high pressure. In my opinion, the hole was actually developed steadily. So my hypothesis here is that for some period of time, and it could be a pretty long time, it could be decades, maybe even centuries, the hole was developed from the bottom up, from the below of permafrost, because of pressure, because of some fluids, gases. They slowly penetrating, were penetrating into permafrost, developing this void, 
in a column shape. And of course, this void was under pretty high pressure because of methane, because of decomposing gas hydrates if they are there. And this development was continuously going up and up and up. And when hole was close to the surface, the roof, maybe just only 10 meters thick, then uh, pressure was uh, big enough to push this roof up and develop a small mound, because we know that before the eruption, it was a mound there. And eventually, when the pressure was higher than strength of the material, the top of this mound just, you know, was thrown out, ejected. So how is this related to climate change, or is it related to climate change? Yeah, I think, in my explanation, uh, climate change is one of the major factors here, because to make this process going, and especially to bring this hole close enough to the surface to make this eruption, you have to have pretty warm permafrost. And in that area, permafrost is, well, it's not really cold, but it's about minus four, minus three degrees Celsius. And at this temperature, it probably couldn't happen. But the latest warming, which is going on in this region for the last more than 30 years, make permafrost one or even two degrees warmer than it was originally. In this case, this hole could actually reach very close to the ground surface because of permafrost's warming, and this hole is continuously going up because of warmer permafrost. So in this case, the warming permafrost is a necessary condition to actually develop this kind of feature. Why do you think we should be concerned about the appearance of these holes in the permafrost? Well, because they can destroy any kind of infrastructure. It could be infrastructure related to gas and oil development, for example, a pipeline, or destroy a building, or infrastructure related to, well, just local communities as well. And with further warming, we will have this more and more common. And exploration and also extraction of oil and gas in the Arctic put some additional pressure on permafrost. And permafrost is getting warmer not only because of warmer climate, but because of human activities in that region as well. So it's kind of uh, human activities put pressure on permafrost, permafrost degrading, developing pressure inside of permafrost, and this pressure affecting back to humans who are started this process. A feedback loop there, huh? Yeah, it's definitely a feedback loop here, yeah. Vladimir Romanovsky is professor of geophysics at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. Thanks so much for explaining to us the possible link between Arctic melting and the mysterious craters in Siberia. Oh, very welcome, and thank you for inviting me. The warming of the Arctic is front and center at the Arctic Council, the official diplomatic forum for the eight nations at the top of the world. Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Russia, Canada, and the U.S., the United States has just begun a two-year term as chair of the council where there is much cooperation but also tensions over the emerging sea lanes, oil and gas extraction, research, and the need to address climate disruption. For some insight on the challenges facing the U.S. in this new role, we turn to Mead Treadwell, a former chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission who just finished a term as lieutenant governor of Alaska in December. Welcome to Living on Earth, Governor. Steve, it's great to be back with you. Now, there are a bunch of issues involved here. There's resource development, there's new shipping lanes that are opening up, there's security questions, there's the climate, there's governance. Governor, what's your top priority for the council, and how can U.S. leadership affect that? 
Well, Steve, I've always said that the Arctic is a brand new ocean. And if we don't use this ocean responsibly, we don't deserve to be there. And so we need, as shipping comes to the north, and people have been trying to bring shipping to the north in a major way for 500 years or more of exploration, we need to do it right. And that means uh, having ships that are prepared for ice conditions. It means having icebreakers and tugs and ports of refuge. We have to be aware of procedures in the law of the sea that would help us get safer shipping. Article 234 is an example that basically gives us power that no other coastal state would have to protect against oil spills from itinerant ships going through. And the U.S. needs to make investments and understand that it, too, is an Arctic nation. Now, as I understand it, the United States doesn't have nearly the icebreakers that the Russians have, and we don't seem to have the resources for the Coast Guard to deal with the safety and even military issues that might come up. What do you think we should do? Well, I think we need permanent forward basing for the Coast Guard. They have been using temporary facilities in Barrow and Kotzebue and Nome. We need icebreakers for the Coast Guard, and uh, there's the concept of a billion-dollar new Battlestar Galactica icebreaker. I don't think we need that. I think we need several smaller icebreakers that you could probably get faster by leasing them. I think we need rules that make sure that ships going through are prepared for oil spills, have done the prevention work for oil spills, just like we have for domestic shipping. We ought to have a cooperative shipping regime in the Arctic to pay attention to it the same way that we paid attention and got the Panama Canal bill. Governor, what about oil and gas? I've seen articles that say that some 30% of the world's gas reserves, perhaps 13% of the world's estimated oil reserves are there, but it's kind of tough to get them out. How safe is it to go after all this stuff? Well, I guess I can say that of the five Arctic coastal states, all of us are trying it one way or the other. The Norwegians have been drilling in the North Sea for many years. We've had drilling in the Chukchi and the Beaufort. The Russians are drilling and have made major finds in the Kara Sea. Iceland has even been leasing its uh, offshore areas, and so has Canada and Greenland. So we're all working on it together. We've done our best to share best practices. And we've got a major exploration program we hope happens here in the Chukchi Sea this summer. Now, some would say that should there be any kind of major spill up there, we don't have the gear nor even the expertise to deal with it. What would you say in response? Well, if we don't have the gear in the United States, you're not allowed to drill. So the oil companies coming to the table have to come with major response contractors and so forth. As chair of the Arctic Research Commission, we wrote several reports, made major recommendations to the White House that we improve and get the U.S. government more involved in the joint industry programs that are working to improve oil and ice response. At the same time, the federal government uh, has rewritten its regulations in terms of what requirements are on the oil rigs themselves. So we're constantly pushing this envelope, but I do believe it's safe enough to explore. And I don't think we can just flatly say, don't do it. There are six Arctic nations working to explore for oil. I'd say get together and do it properly. Now, there are eight countries in the Arctic Council, but there are a number of other countries who want to say in all of this. What about the other countries of the world who want in? Well, you know, officially at the Arctic Council, these countries are called observers. I think of them as Arctic partners. And Steve, look at it this way. Whatever we do among the eight Arctic nations or the people who live in the Arctic region, we're not going to deal with some of these massive global problems without other large players sitting at the table. So the fact that China is now an observer... Singapore, India, Japan, Korea, and 
I guess I would say that what these countries are interested in is being partners with the Arctic nations to make sure that what happens in this ocean happens right and to be there as the rules are set. You mentioned, and the State Department often mentions the importance of the Law of the Sea Convention when it comes to global ocean issues, yet the U.S. is not officially a member of the Law of the Sea Treaty process. How would you vote in the Senate if you were there, if it were to come up for ratification, and why? Well, I support the uh, procedures in the Law of the Sea that affect us in the Arctic. I'm not sure I support the procedure in the Law of the Sea that has us pay a tax to the International Seabed Authority for offshore development anywhere a U.S. company is working. And that's been what's held it up. It has not been the Arctic issues. And in fact, there is a general consensus that we need it in the Arctic, that as other nations are making claims for vast areas at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean, we need to be there and make our claim. There is freedom of the seas embodied in the law of the sea, and it would help us you know, remove the small disputes that we have with Canada and Russia on internal waters versus international waters. The law of the sea has got other things in it that need to be fixed. One big concern I have for researchers is that Russia has not been very welcoming of research inside its 200-mile limit, and as they get control of land all the way to the North Pole on the ocean bottom, it's going to make it very hard for climate research by other nations without Russia So I'm hopeful that negotiators on Law of the Sea might come together and work on access for research on the ocean bottom. So it may be time to address some of these issues in in another convention. I'm not sure. Now, what about fishing in the Arctic? You know, as the climate changes, more and more fish stocks may be moving north. And the U.S. has a moratorium on high seas fishing in its 200-mile limit. And I'm very glad that Ambassador David Bolton has also brought the Arctic countries together to see if we can make sure that we do science before we allow commercial fishing. Over the last decade or so, we've brought together scientists from the Barents Sea with scientists from the Bering Sea, for example, and Russian scientists and Canadian scientists. So the fact that high seas fishing agreement in the Arctic is under consideration, to me, is very important. And so far, what successes would you point to of the Arctic Council? Oh, I'd say lots of successes. Uh, You know, early on, back before climate change was probably the largest issue, we were very concerned, Steve, about contaminants. So the council has had for a long time an Arctic monitoring and assessment program so that we can help fight transboundary pollution. And I think that's been positive. The first binding agreement of the Arctic Council was a search and rescue agreement. And tens of thousands of people fly through the Arctic every day between Europe and Asia, North America and Asia. And the countries sat down in 2011 and divvied up the Arctic to assign responsibility for search and rescue. The oil spill agreement does not do as much in the way of prevention as I had hoped. But there's a number of other social issues that just in our small neighborhood at the top of the world have been addressed and need to be addressed. We have a very high suicide rate among young people, especially young men. And that is not just in Alaska, but it's in other Arctic regions. So we're sharing expertise on that. Another thing that I think is very important is protection of native languages. And we are sharing expertise on that. We're working on food security. We're working on lowering cost of energy. We're working on the suicide and the health issues. So in the close to 80 projects that these governments are doing together in the North, we are building a neighborhood. And despite the challenges that the United States has with Russia today and the West has with Russia today, we are continuing cooperation at the top of the world. Me Treadwell is the former Republican Lieutenant Governor of Alaska and has served in the past as chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission. Thanks for taking the time with me today. 
Thanks, Steve, and we'll see you at the top of the world. The waters off the coast of Oregon are teeming with delectable pink shrimp. But shrimpers often scoop up fish they don't want, what's known as bycatch, in particular a smelt called the eulicon. And that is costly for the eulicon and the fishing boat operators. Now government scientists have discovered a nifty way to cut the eulicon bycatch using LED lights. Bob Hanna of the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife told Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald all about it. So first off, tell us a little bit about this fish. What is a eulicon? Yeah, it's a neat fish. It's also called the candlefish. It's an anadromous smelt. It lives in the ocean, but it runs up rivers like the Columbia to spawn, and it's been harvested by lots of people for many years, including Native American tribes for food and other uses. And so when did you first notice that these fish were getting trapped in shrimping nets? These fish have been a bycatch in the shrimp fishery since day one when the fishery began in the 50s. In fact, fishermen invented uh, smelt belts to sort them out in the 80s because they were so abundant at that time. And what's a smelt belt? Yeah, it's a smelt belt. It's a rotating sandpaper belt that's part of their deck gear. The shrimp slide down them, but the smelt stick, and they're pulled up and go out a, a trash chute. So they've been abundant enough to, to require mechanized sorting for a, a quite a long time. And so now fishermen in Oregon have been using grates also in their nets to sort of exclude some of the fish like the eulicon that they don't want to prevent that bycatch. How do those work? Well, they work very, very well. They're an inclined panel of vertical bars that sort the large fish out and they go out the top, out of the net, and let the shrimp pass through. And they work very, very well on all large fish. They also work to some degree on eulicon and other small fish, but it still left a fair amount of bycatch in the catch. So how did you come up with the idea to use lights to light up these fishing nets? Well, it was a little bit by accident, a little bit by design. We had done some camera work, underwater camera work, to look at the behavior of the eulicon as they were being excluded from the trawls. We wanted to make sure they were in really, really good condition and that they weren't just being completely stressed out before they were excluded from the trawls. And we wondered how the lights of our camera system were affecting what we were seeing. And so we decided to test what the effect of light was on the exclusion efficiency. So we came up with this light experiment. It was funny. Our hypothesis going in was that if we put these lights around these grates, that more eulicon would go out of the net. And the exact opposite happened. More of them went through the grate and wound up getting caught. And in fact, it about doubled the bycatch. Fortunately for us, we also had decided to try them up on the foot rope at the front of the trawl, right where the netting attaches. And the nets in this fishery run about 18 inches to 24 inches above the seafloor. So there's a big space underneath for fish to go through. They just won't use it a lot of times. And so what did you find? So when you, you put the light to the front of the net, what was the impact on bycatch? Well, it was amazing. These vessels are double rigged. They run two nets at one time. So it's really nice. You put the lights on one net, no lights on the other. You dump the catches into a divided hopper. And you can see immediately the difference. And when we dumped our first tow with the lights up on the foot rope, it was amazing. There was quite a bit of fish in one side with the shrimp. And the other side was basically nothing but shrimp. We all looked at each other. We knew something very significant had just happened, unless it was just a fluke. So we did a few more, few more toes, and we moved the lights from one side, one net to the other. And every time we moved the lights to that side, all of a sudden, the vast majority of bycatch didn't show up in the net. So that evening, we finished seven toes that day. And that evening, we're sitting around the dinner table, and the skipper was steaming the boat towards shore. And I didn't really know why, but I was kind of focused on my dinner. We get inside cell phone range, and he picks up his cell phone and calls his wife and orders $2,000 worth of these lights. When he got off the phone, I asked him, are those going to pay for themselves? And he said, probably in a day. If you have a lot of bycatch in your net, sometimes you have to dump the whole tow. And 
you might have to dump three or four or 5,000 pounds of shrimp. And at 50 cents a pound, that's, that covers the lights. So Bob, tell me, what do you think is going on? What about having the lights at the front of the net is enabling the Ulicon to avoid, avoid becoming bycatch? Well, okay, here's our working hypothesis. The shrimp fishery works at, at pretty deep depths, 60 fathoms out to 140 fathoms. So there's not much light on the seafloor. It's virtually dark. So what we think is happening is the fish react in what's called an optimotor response. They just avoid an approaching object, even if they can just barely see it. We think that in both cases, at the grate and at the front of the trawl, adding the light allows the fish to navigate through a confined space in the back of the trawl that they go through the grate and I think they can see that there's something back there that they're okay, comfortable going to. I think at the front, they see that there's a space between the net and the seafloor that they can get through and get back to the seafloor. So I think it, it allows them to utilize escape routes that are there. So you're basically just using a little bit of technology and giving them a hand to save themselves. Yeah, but it's very interesting. In, it's kind of a cool thing because it's been known for a long time that in the day and the night, fish react differently to approaching trawls and inside the trawl. And now what we've shown is that by adding light, you can alter the effect in a low light situation in terms of how they respond to the components of the trawl. So it may have applications in other fisheries to get the fish you want out of the trawl, out of the trawl. So tell me a little bit about the reaction you've had from fishermen in the area. Are people excited about this, about this development? Oh, they are so excited. We did send a newsletter out to the fleet to tell them, hey, this is a good thing to do. And within two months, the entire fleet virtually was using these lights. Anybody who didn't have them had them on order. And when we surveyed the fleet back in uh, September, October of last year, we got these written surveys and we got a lot of great comments. Thanks for doing this. This is great. How did you think of this? Um, uh, well, we really appreciate you guys. And we're still getting comments like that from people who are like coming back into the fishery. We're so glad you guys figured this out. And I don't think that's coming from an overwhelming sense of conservation concern for the Ulicon. I think it's coming from some of the operational difficulties that the technology solved for people who are having high bycatches. Bob, at the end of the day, what do you hope comes out of this research? Oh, what I hope comes out of this, I hope that, that people in a lot of trawl fisheries around the world come up with innovative ways to reduce bycatch in other fisheries with other problems and understand better methods for, for motivating fish to use bycatch escape routes in, in trawls so that trawl fishing generally can be cleaner and more sustainable. That's Bob Hanna of the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife in conversation with Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald. But becoming bycatch isn't the only problem for sea creatures off the coast of the Pacific Northwest. Undersea noise levels are increasing in the region as thousands of freighters, ferries, and other vessels motor up and down the coast. And some new research details how that noise could make life harder for endangered marine mammals. From the public media collaborative EarthFix, Ashley Ahern has the story. Picture yourself at a noisy bar. You realize that you've been shouting at the top of your lungs all night just to be heard. Well, orcas and Puget Sound are in kind of the same situation. This is a recording from a hydrophone that was suctioned onto a wild killer whale in the San Juan Islands, near a passing vessel. Loud boat noise like this forces endangered killer whales to raise the volume of their calls. Marla Holt is a biologist at the NOAA Northwest Fisheries Science Center in Seattle. But the question is, okay, so they do it, but so what? 
What are the biological consequences of them doing this? To answer that question, Holt and her NOAA colleague Don Noren studied captive bottlenose dolphins. In the experiment, the dolphin swims into this funny little floating plastic helmet-looking thing that's positioned over its head, and then the trainer asks it to make its normal whistling call for two minutes for a fishy reward. Don Noren measured how much oxygen the dolphin used during those two minutes. And then by knowing oxygen consumption, you can determine metabolic rate or how much it costs you to work or work harder. Then they asked the dolphin to pump up the volume. Making that louder call takes more energy. Holt and Noren found that when the dolphin was whistling harder and louder, its metabolic rate rose by up to 80% above normal resting levels. And just like people, when their metabolic rate goes up, they burn more calories, so they have to eat more. If you have multiple incidences where you're increasing your vocals to compensate for a noisy environment, you could have some increased need to find more fish. The scientists say that when wild orcas are around loud ships, the volume of their calls increase by the same amount or more than the dolphins in the lab. That could mean wild orcas need to eat more salmon to make up for the calories they're burning to vocalize more loudly around big ships. The concern is basically for animals that are maybe just getting by or not really getting by, we could say this is how much more fish it would cost an animal if it was disturbed um, that much more. Holt says that as the region considers proposals to expand coal and oil shipments, as well as naval training activities, this research could be used to calculate specific impacts on marine mammals like endangered killer whales. There are just 81 of them left. I'm Ashley Ahern in Seattle. Ashley reports for EarthFix, and to be clear, while there are as many as 50,000 orcas still on the planet, the population often found near Seattle is considered endangered because of its small numbers. And we've got news of another project that might help protect whales, the Blue Whales Blue Skies Initiative. It's the brainchild of a group of marine conservation, pollution control, environmental protection, and shipping line interests that came together to try to clean up the air along Southern California's coastline and at the same time reduce the likelihood of ships running into whales. Living on Earth's John Duff spoke with Mary Bird of the Santa Barbara County Air Pollution Control District. Can you paint us a picture of the ocean area that we're talking about? How big is the area and what's going on out there? Well, Santa Barbara County on the coast of California has 130 miles of coastline, and just off our coast is the Santa Barbara Channel. Now, the channel is home to two giants that roam the oceans of the world. One is the container ship, which comes through the channel on its way to the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And the other is the blue whale, which comes to the channel to feed. And the channel is also a migratory path for a number of other endangered whale species. So these two are on a collision course, and this project is all about addressing both issues for common goals. How big are these ships? Well, they can be any number of sizes. These container ships have engines the size of a three-story building. It's really very difficult to see the whale from the container ship. In one case, there's a situation where a ship came into port and there was a bowfin over the bow, and the captain had no idea that the ship had struck a whale. Can you tell us a little bit about how many ships are moving through that area on an annual basis and how many of the whales might be out there? 
We know that the numbers vary a lot based on the shipping economy. Some years it's up to 2,500 transits through the channel. Some years it's much more. In terms of the whale species, there's a variety of different types of species. The gray whales are on a migration path through the channel. Now, they are not considered endangered, but there are other species that are. The blue whales come through the channel to feed. Not that much is known about the blue whale, and it's not clear that they can avoid the ships. When you think about it, they have not evolved to have to deal with anything larger than they are that moves. You work for an air pollution control district. How did you get involved in protecting whales? We have been documenting the huge amount of air pollution from ships that go through the channel in our emission inventory since 1994. And the NOx emissions from these ships really threaten our ability to attain air quality standards. And NOx, for people who are not familiar with that term, is? Nitrogen oxides, and it's a key ingredient in the formation of ground-level ozone, which we know of as smog. In Santa Barbara County, we do not meet the state standard for ground-level ozone. We just barely meet the federal ozone standard, and as we've gotten successful with programs onshore reducing pollution, the concern grows about the shipping emissions because NOx emissions from these ships really threaten our ability to attain air quality standards. If you solve the ship air emission problem, do you solve the attainment problem? Well, it depends on how big a program we're able to fund because they do produce a significant piece of the NOx emissions in our county when we look at our inventory. And we are running out of things to do onshore to achieve the big ticket NOx reductions. So that's why we've been focusing so much energy on shipping. Can you tell us about the other folks involved in this program and how it works? Well, the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary and the Environmental Defense Center, who are two principal partners in this, have been very concerned about whale protection in the Santa Barbara Channel. And one of the things they settled on was reducing the ship speed as a strategy to provide an immediate benefit in protection of whales. So when they came to us and said, we have an interest in whale protection, you have an interest in pollution reduction, let's work together. It was a great match. And in fact, the studies show when you slow a ship down to 12 knots, you can cut the air pollution almost in half. And not just NOx, but a range of other air pollutants as well. And the studies also have shown that when you reduce the ship's speed, you're making it much less likely that a ship strike will kill a whale. So we have a lot of common ground here to work with, and we call it protecting blue skies and blue whales. And how fast would those ships have been going if they didn't reduce to 12 knots? This particular ship had to have a previous rated speed through the channel average speed of 14 knots or greater. We provided an incentive payment of 2500 per transit. So they were agreeing to go down to 12 knots for the incentive payment. You've got a lot of interest from air pollution control districts. Can you tell us about the positive results? Even a small-scale trial like this one, we've achieved more than 16 tons of NOx reductions. The primary months where these transits happened were, were July through October, which is not just the peak whale season in the channel, but it's also the peak ozone or smog pollution season for our county. So it's the timing of the reduction as well as the fact of the reduction. Mary, you had a number of shipping lines participate in this program. Which ones, in any sense of why those particular lines did it? 
We had seven global shipping companies participate, and they all get credit for being a part of this program. Costco, Hapak Lloyd, K-Line, Maersk, Matson, Mitsui, OSK Lines, and United Arab Shipping Company were all a part of this. The Maersk line in particular, we talked to years ago. They came and did a presentation for us to sort of help us understand how the industry worked. And the Pacific Merchant Shipping Association was extremely helpful in helping us structure the program, helping us understand what the shipping industry needed. In the first year, we got great participation from the shipping industry. We have documented emission reductions. We laid the groundwork that we were hoping to lay for a bigger program. What's next for the program? We would like to be able to fund many, many more transits to be 12 knots or slower through the channel to try to grow this into a, a full-scale channel program and then eventually statewide and maybe even bigger. Mary Bird of Santa Barbara County Air Pollution Control speaking with Living on Earth's John Duff. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. Off to find out what's happening beyond the headlines now. Peter Dykstra of the dailyclimate.org and environmental health news, that's ehn.org, has been digging through the possibilities and joins us now on the line from Conyers, Georgia. How are you doing, Peter? Well, I'm well, Steve. Let's start with a little bit of climate change political theater that made my head explode this week. Pope Francis has made action on climate change an imperative, convening a global conference and preparing an encyclical, a major policy statement for the Catholic Church. But some of the biggest names in climate change denial are also on a pilgrimage to Rome. Their mission? To straighten out the Pope on this global warming business. So among others, Lord Moncton, the rather colorful British peer, Mark Morano, the American political operative, and the lads from the Heartland Institute. They're the ones who put up a billboard comparing climate activists to the Unabomber a few years ago, took a trip to the Eternal City. I like to think of them as sort of the Joker, the Riddler, and the Penguin of climate science. Well, Peter, if you're going to go there on this issue, don't leave out that other Batman nemesis, Mr. Freeze. We could use him to fight global warming. Good one. I take it those gentlemen weren't exactly invited by the Vatican, huh? No, they weren't invited. They didn't get a papal audience, but they did hold a press conference, though that didn't get much of an audience either. And in advance of the trip, they buttered up His Holiness by playing the Satan card, saying that by endorsing climate action, Pope Francis is aligning himself with the biggest enemies of the church and of Catholic moral principles. Lord Moncton, a lifelong Catholic, has said that his current spiritual leader is a climate communist. So where many see a green pope, they're seeing a red pope? It seems so, but enough about those guys. I wanted to follow up on the interviews you had in last week's show on this year's winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize. Okay, what you got? Well, as you noted, the Goldman Prize honors environmental activists from around the world who sometimes risk their lives to protect the environment. The human rights group Global Witness tracked 116 murders of environmental activists worldwide last year as violence greeted protests against illegal mining and logging and dam building and other environmental threats. So that's more than two deaths per week for defending the environment. Where are these killings taking place and who's doing the killing? About three quarters of them were in Central and South America, with Honduras being the world's most deadly nation for environmentalists. There, the activists say that government troops are behind the death toll. 
And Berta Caceres, one of the Goldman winners this year, is a Honduran environmental leader. Let's hope the visibility that comes with winning the Goldman Prize will help keep her alive. Indeed. Hey, Peter, take us now back through the annals of environmental history. Okay, most folks know who Bill McKibben is, activist, acclaimed author of all sorts of books on nature and climate change. But my favorite Bill McKibben book is an obscure one called The Age of Missing Information. 25 years ago this week, in preparation for the book, McKibben recruited 93 people in Fairfax County, Virginia, to record 24 hours each of a channel on the county's cable TV system. And then Bill McKibben watched it all. Sitcoms, preachers, game shows, newscasts, reruns, infomercials, old movies, C-SPAN. 93 channels, 24 hours. 2,232 hours of American television. Oh, wow. And then he spent 24 more hours on a remote mountain in the Adirondacks and wrote about the two very different human experiences. The reason I love this book is a very simple takeaway. The natural world and our self-made technological world both offer diversion and amusement and escape. And from nature, it's a gift. But far too often, our 1990s TV shows or our tweets and streaming videos and Instagrams today aren't gifted to us. They're shoveled at us. And don't forget, that was back when MTV had music videos and TV news had, well, actual news. And reality TV was still just a gleam in the bottom of somebody's barrel. Of course, with all that TV to watch, Bill McKibben didn't actually write the book for another two years. In a word, the difference between nature and technology is like the difference between reality and reality TV. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks again, Peter. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. Bob Inglis represented South Carolina's 4th District for six terms as a conservative Republican who believes in limited government, market solutions to problems, and action on climate change. And that latter belief, the one about climate change, is in part why he lost his seat in a primary election in 2010. But now that stand has won Bob Inglis a Profile and Courage Award from the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation, though he's modest about the idea that he's any kind of hero. I think mostly the courage is just to try to lead to the future, and that comes really from having five kids and wanting to be able to face them and their children. Really, it's about love for them and love for those that will come after us, and that's more powerful, I guess, than trying to hold on to a voting card in Congress. In announcing this award to you, the JFK Library Foundation quoted President Kennedy's words, no problem of human destiny is beyond human beings, and noted that uh, you have displayed the courage to keep an open mind and uphold your responsibility as a leader and citizen at the expense of your own political career. How ironic is it for you to get an award from one of America's most visible liberal families? Well, you know, I've, I tweeted shortly after the award, you know, that President Kennedy was a tax-cutting, communist-fighting, ask-not kind of guy. I think he's a particularly good Republican, actually. Um, so um, <laughs> I'm thinking that if you go back to what he had to say about his view of America and the role that America could play in the world, he would fit right in in a Republican primary in 2016. Maybe you could say he was a bipartisan in a time when, in fact, people did talk across the aisle. I think that what's so important about the award, it sets up a, another look at climate and asks the question, you know, really, can we accomplish really great things like we did with the moonshot with a president who was optimistic enough 
to believe in the people that he represented. I hope that that's the message that goes out from the award is it, let's do it again, just like we did the moonshot. Let's do it with energy. Let's reinvent energy. And um, we've got to have leaders who believe in America's ability to innovate and are ready to venture on that. Unlike the moonshot, which involved a huge amount of government expenditures, the solution to climate change can actually be a smaller government, one that just forces accountability on all the fuels and set all cost in on all the fuels. And then the free enterprise system can sort out who the winners and losers will be. Still, Congressman, you've been out of step with many, I'd say perhaps most in your party on this issue of climate. What's that been like for you? Well, it's lonely at times, of course, when you look around and, uh, you, you know, after saying something, you realize there's not many people saying amen. You know, you sort of hear crickets after you've said something. But, you know, the future has a few leaders and a whole lot of followers. And the question is, what's the good of leading after it's become obvious? The only way to show courage in leading is when it's not yet obvious. This is a time to go from point A to point B. That's what leadership's about. Once you get to B and it becomes obvious that that's where you should have gone, well, there's not much courage there. So I think it's while it can be lonely, it's also very exciting. And I'm certain that this is the future and that um, we're about to win the future in solving for climate change by using the strength of the free enterprise system. Congressman, what was the moment that you realized that you needed to take the climate on as an issue come hell or high water in terms of your career and electability? Um, three steps, really, uh, with a third probably being the most conclusive. But first step was my son saying to me when he was voting for the first time in 04, and I was running again for Congress, he said, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. His four sisters agreed, his mother all agreed, so I had a new constituency that was important to respond to. Second step was seeing the evidence in the ice core drillings in Antarctica in a science committee trip there. And the third step, the one that caused me finally to act, was checking out coral bleaching at the Great Barrier Reef, uh, snorkeling with an Aussie climate scientist, and being able to tell that we shared a worldview in the way that he was interacting with nature before we had words about what that worldview was. I could tell that he was worshiping God in the creation. He was not worshiping the creation. And so uh, afterwards, having plenty of time to talk, he told me about conservation changes he's making in his life in order to love God and love people. And I found that real inspiring. I want to be like Scott, loving God and loving people. So I came home and introduced the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009, which economists would call a revenue-neutral, border-adjustable carbon tax but what's better marketed as a 100% returnable emissions tax, I suppose. Neither description would have helped me in the greatest, in, in the darkest days of the Great Recession. So I lost my reelection in 2010. Speaking of God, the Pope is making an impassioned call for climate action. And there are a lot of conservative and Catholic right to life voters who pay attention to the tenets of the church. How might that affect how those conservatives consider climate change now, do you think? No, I think it's a very important development that the Pope is going to issue this encyclical. In many ways, the Catholic Church led evangelicals into the pro-life movement. And I think it may be the case that this encyclical and the Pope's example 
may lead other believers into action on climate. So I'm very encouraged by it and think if it's anything like the statement by the Pontifical Science Authority, it'll be beautiful. It'll be really poetic. It'll be very inspiring. And it'll be quite a call to action. So I think it's a big development that the Pope is going to issue that encyclical. And I think also the speech to the joint session of Congress in September will be a very important moment. Because, you know, there there are many devout members of Congress who have for a long time derided cafeteria Catholics, those that aren't willing to accept the church's teaching on abortion. So now do they become cafeteria Catholics if they refuse to accept the church's teaching on climate change? Very interesting question, huh? What's next for you? The next thing is to build this group of conservatives who believe in the power of free enterprise, and that we're doing at an outfit called republicen.org. And so it's basically trying to give a tribal identity to conservatives who believe in the power of free enterprise to solve really big challenges like climate change. And so we're gathering people to that identity, uh, creating a community, Because the most powerful thing is just showing that we're not alone. We as humans need to have connections with other people. And so we're going to show that there, there, there are conservatives out here ready to act on climate change. Former South Carolina Congressman Bob Inglis is the recipient of this year's JFK Library Foundation's Profiles and Courage Award. Thank you so much, Congressman, for taking the time. Great to be with you, Steve. Thank you. One of the great pleasures of spring is the bird song that's suddenly all around us from before dawn till way beyond dusk. And the tunes these songsters create are as varied as they are, as Mary McCann explains in today's Bird Note. Bird songs come in many shapes and sizes. When a sage thrasher, perched atop a clump of sagebrush, tips its head back to sing, the notes rush forth. What you just heard is a mere snippet. Sage thrashers often sing nonstop for at least two minutes and can go on for more than 20. In stark comparison, a brewer's blackbird singing to the world from atop a fence post sounds brusque. One full song from a brewer's blackbird lasts barely a second. Amazingly, a Henslow's sparrow values brevity even more. That was it. In case you missed it, here it is again. But whether long, drawn out, or short and sweet, bird songs are all about the same things, territory and breeding, claiming a space and attracting a mate. Once those are sorted out, further singing by the male is all about keeping his territory intact. As for the sage thrasher, He's still going strong. I'm Mary McCann. You can find pictures and more at our website, loe.org. Next time on Living on Earth, 
the wolves of Isle Royale and Lake Superior are in terrible shape. Well, given the genetic makeup of the current three that are left, I wouldn't give it a chance at all of survival. Without new genetic material, I'd say it's a doomed population. And that's not just bad for the wolves, it's also bad news for science. That's next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week deep in a southern swamp. Pig frogs make the loudest grunts in this pond in the Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge in Georgia. You can distinguish the treble notes of cricket frogs and the distinctive katuk katuk calls of carpenter frogs. Lang Elliott and Ted Mack recorded this frog concert for the Nature Sound Adventure series, Voices of the Swamp. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis. Our show is engineered by Tom Tiger with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and John Jessa. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our theme. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International